From the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, this is the I'm Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Mina Tadros. Tonight is sweeping government warning. Don't leave the country. All travel outside of Canada to be uh, considered high risk for Canadians. Limiting flights bound for Canada, closing schools, daycares, even Parliament to try to stop the spread of coronavirus. COVID-19's impact on Canada is getting wider. The number of cases nearly 200 so far, and its impact on our lives, our communities, and our work is already massive. The concern now that this outbreak in this country has only begun. As we enter this chapter of the COVID-19 pandemic, March 2020 feels like a lifetime ago. I want you to think back. Where were you when you first heard the news about the pandemic? Where and how did you deal with that first lockdown? Unprecedented. New normal. Social distancing. Uncertain times. Essential worker. You like myself and many, are probably sick of hearing these terms after three years and what feels like a decade and a half. The COVID-19 pandemic changed us and everything around us, whether we like it or not. As I think back to the pandemic, one thought I can't seem to shake is at the very start, some initial conversations in Canada about how we were ready for the pandemic and drawing from lessons that we experienced during the SARS outbreak. Experts were brought forth who fought and analyzed the outbreak. And somehow this made us feel like we were ready. Counter to that narrative, at the very start of the pandemic, people shared lots of footage online of lots of scientists and public figures warning for years that another pandemic was coming. And I think it's fair to say we weren't ready. I really don't wanna be negative. There are some incredible things that happened, especially at the very start. Initial lockdowns were generally well participated in. Hospitals and the healthcare system kicked in and all worked together. We produced incredible science within just months. The entire health and science infrastructure worked together and it was remarkable. But as the pandemic drew forward, it was very easy to see we weren't ready to deal with many of its components. But rather than complaining today, I wanna take time in this episode to think about, did we actually learn anything? But more importantly, Are we ready for the next pandemic? To start the episode, I chatted with Emily Musing, a healthcare leader who was at ground zero for a lot of Canada's response to the pandemic. I'm Emily Musing, and I'm the inaugural leader in residence at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. And until my recent retirement, I was also the VP Clinical and the Chief Patient Safety Officer at the University Health Network, Canada's largest academic health science centre. So in that role, my portfolio included pharmacy, antimicrobial stewardship, infection prevention and control, and quality and safety. And between 2020 and 2022, I also led the team that uh, was responsible for the development and implementation of the first COVID vaccine clinic, which then expanded to several standing clinics and a mobile strategy for the greater Toronto area. So December 2019. I open my Twitter account. I vividly remember this. And I'm seeing these videos coming out of China. Very scary. And and I'm like, what is going on? And as an epidemiologist, you know, everyone's downplaying it. Everyone's like, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. 
I'm like, this is how things start. You know, I'm going back to my R naught, you know, intro to Epi. Um, people are calculating on the back of the napkin what they think the R naught is. So what were you doing in December 2019? Let's let's start there and then walk us through how this adventure for you uh unfolded over those two years. I think I was like everyone else, you know, a bit in shock at what was happening, not having all the information and really trying to get that information through a whole variety of sources, whether yeah. it was through the news, through the internet, talking to my community around me. There was a lack of information out there. Let's put it that way. So everyone was guessing as to what was the cause of this? What was the impact of this pandemic? This, you know, At that point, we didn't know it was going to be a pandemic, but something was going on that we thought at some point was going to hit us and impact you know, our country. And as a pharmacist, of course, our first thoughts, thoughts go to, well, is there anything that we can do to help with this? Is, are there drugs that can uh, prevent mm-hmm. us from you know, uh, getting COVID? Uh, are there treatment entities that we need to think about? What is it that we as a profession can do about this? So we were all in the dark. And then as the year progressed, more things came out with regards to information. And there was a realization that, boy, this is a big deal. This mm-hmm. is not just in China. This is something that is going to hit people everywhere, including in Canada. Now, I think that when you think about um, the pandemic, you know, and you think about infectious disease in general, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I did, well, did a lot of study linked to quality and safety. And really, I think that the occurrence of the pandemic is very similar to my experience with medication incidents. Right. Rarely is it the result of any one issue, but it's really the perfect storm of anything coming together. So right. with the pandemic, you had existing viruses all over the world, lots of mutations going on. Then you had a lot of cases where people were exposed to the virus. It could be because they were exposed to animals that were the conduits of the transmission. Or in this case, maybe it was uh, people working in labs and therefore exposed to the virus there. And at the same time, our world is such that people are traveling very quickly from country to country and they do it all the time. And then when it started spreading, you know, it had huge impact, not just from a healthcare perspective, certainly from a healthcare perspective, because people were getting sick, people were dying. But also when you look at the bigger picture of what happened in the pandemic, I mean, it impacted whole countries, economies, because we're so dependent on each other for our raw materials, for our supplies, for trade, et cetera. So the problem with a pandemic is that it really was a perfect storm of many things. As the year went on, we started thinking as an organization, the University Health Network, what's our role? What is it that we could do? And um, many people stepped up and started taking on positions, working with the ministry or working with public health to figure out plans and to start prepping. And then I was approached because pharmacy reported to me. People knew that I have pharmacy background. They said, you know, Emily, we're likely going to be one of the major distribution hubs for a vaccine. And when that happens, we need to figure out how are we going to store the vaccine? How are we going to distribute it to different people? How are we going to maintain inventory? Your pharmacist, pharmacy reports to you. This might be an area of your expertise. Why don't you get a team together and figure that out? So I started gathering a team together, mainly linked to pharmacy, to look at this. This quickly escalated to, oh, Emily, now you have a team together of different people. Can you expand that team and not only look at drug distribution, drug storage, but can you expand that team to look at how do we create a clinic? So at that point, a clinic to include 
uh, to ensure that our healthcare staff within the hospital get vaccinated. Again, seems to be a fairly uh, clear mandate. Yeah. We have a certain number of staff we're dealing with, you know, 16,000 uh, uh, staff, another you know, 5,000 uh, physicians that we want to get uh uh, vaccinated. So I thought, okay, I can do this. Well, how early was UHN talking about vaccines? Mm-hmm. Like how early were you starting to plan for this even, uh, you know, within the pandemic? Yeah, it was in the fall. Um, that, well, we were talking about what, 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we started really um, getting the teams together and looking at what do we do if we get access to a vaccine? You have to remember that at that point, we thought we had a lot of time. We thought that the vaccine was not going to be available until spring of the next year. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And then that didn't happen. Vaccines and the mRNA miracle were central to the pandemic response. To learn more about mRNA, I chatted with Dr. Bowen Lee, an assistant professor here at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. His work explores the use of mRNA technology, and prior to coming to the University of Toronto, he worked with Drs. Robert Langer and Daniel Anderson. Dr. Langer is one of the founders of Moderna, the company that produced one of the first mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines. Tell us about mRNA. How does, how does that work? I think a lot of people know that these vaccines that came out during the pandemic are, are different, first of their kind. Um, how, are they, how are they different from other vaccines and like how, how do they work? Okay, so mRNA vaccine actually is considered as a as a revolutionary technology in the field of vaccines, um, because previously people have to um, use deactivated virus as mm-hmm. a vaccine, or they take you know a portion from the virus, such as the protein or peptides, to make the vaccines. Mm-hmm. So the biggest problem with this strategy is that so first of all, the immune response is uh, elicited by this kind of old or traditional technology may not be sufficient to protect human. Second, the speed, the development speed is not very fast. Usually it takes like uh, as long as 10 years or even longer to develop the vac- traditional mm-hmm. vaccine. Um, but I think MRA, what MRA attracts us is that MRA makes this, um, you know, two tasks can be addressed easily by MRA, basically. Uh, so first of all, we don't have to take, you know, or manufacture or, or make like deactivated virus or take manufactured proteins from the virus anymore. Uh, what we need to do is we, can, we just need to analyze the sequence of the virus and then um, use that uh, virus, like a sequencing information as a template to make the MRA. So the whole process is super quick. It takes just a few weeks to make the MRA. And because we already have a pretty established lipinola particle platform, and we just need to load this MRA into LMP and then MRA MR vaccine, you got it. And once this vaccine got injected into human, they view, uh, the MRA they will enter the appropriate cells, express into um, the antigens, we call it antigen, because mm-hmm. this antigen basically mimic the virus. And this antigen is different from virus because they will not cause any trouble, will not cause disease in human but they can pre-train our immune system to recognize this virus when they encounter them in the future. So basically this is called a, a you know, induction of immunity. immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this way, the MR vaccine can quickly help human to build immunity against this specific virus. And uh, uh, what amazing is the immune responses induced by MR vaccine is usually uh, more robust and it can last for a longer time compared with this traditional uh, vaccine technology. 
So that's why I'm, what I'm saying is, so first is the speed is the biggest advantage of MR vaccines. So I can tell you like the COVID-19 MR vaccine only takes less than 12 months from the beginning of the pandemic to uh, the temporary approval of the first MR vaccine. Yeah. Only takes less than 12 months. So this speed has never seen in human history before. So I worked in vaccines, but like the old ones. And when the pandemic first started, I was like, we're not going to see anything for two to three years. Like if it was the old speed and that would be us getting very lucky. Exactly. Yeah. You may remember, you know, the coronavirus is not the first time for coronavirus yeah. to attack humans. Um, back to when I was a kid, like 2003, mm-hmm. uh, there's another COVID, it's, it's a SARS-CoV-1. Mm-hmm. And uh, until the end of the pandemic, human does not still haven't, you know, developed a vaccine against yeah. it. And Toronto got hit hard by SARS. Uh, it was one of the main sites in 2003. Like we had, we had, you couldn't go to the hospitals. There was lockdowns. People wouldn't travel to Toronto because we had one of the, so it's very top of mind for us what happened with SARS and yeah, we didn't have anything ready for coronavirus at all, right? Yeah, all of this has been changed by MRA technology. So if you can imagine in the future, the future pandemic, suddenly there's a new virus we've never seen. So were we lucky because it was a coronavirus that we've seen before? Like what if it was a novel virus that perhaps we haven't been working on? Like was that part of it that we'd been working on the coronavirus already? Or was it, is it the mRNA technology that's ready to tackle any virus? Um, this is a, a great question. Um, so we don't know what it would be the next pandemic, right? So probably the pandemic is not not caused by virus, probably caused by bacteria, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think the researchers have already started to think about this and put a lot of efforts to study that. So current strategy is that we want to build, um, it's called a universal vaccine or we call it like uh, the vaccine that can induce broadly neutralizing antibodies, which means they can not only, they can be, these vaccines can not only be effective against a specific virus, they can be generally effective against multiple types of virus. Mm-hmm. You know, this virus, they don't, they are not independent. They usually uh, evolute, right? They usually like uh, derive from a original a strain, for example, the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So this coronavirus, they have some overlap with it, with each other. They have some similarities. So the scientists currently are trying to find these similarities mm-hmm. and find the uh, uh, the highest possible evolution in the future. So which parts tends to you know evolve in the future, and then they take this parts and 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 combine these similarities together so that they can they want to develop the universal vaccine that can against the multiple types of coronavirus. Uh, so for example, right now we are working on um, a vac- MR vaccine that can is, that is expected to be effective against not only SARS-CoV-1, but also SARS-CoV-2 and, uh, 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 and multiple types of other coronavirus. So we expect that in the future, when we encounter a new pandemic, this vaccine can be used for, for the, you know, for the first batch of production, like uh, protect human for the yeah. First, yeah at the first uh, in the first place, but and but this will buy us some time to develop better vaccines. Miracle or not, the vaccine came faster than we anticipated. But that's just half the battle. It's not just about producing the vaccine, but actually getting people vaccinated. To tell us more about how that process happened and how they actually were able to do that. Here's Emily again. First shots were what? 
January, February? Or? No, we uh, we got fairly short notice that the vaccine was available and it was going to be available to us by mid-December. Wow. And I remember that date, December 14th of 2020. Yeah. We um, got notice that we had to get a vaccination clinic ready. We were really scrambling because remember, we thought the vaccine was not going to be available till spring. <clears throat> so we had to get that vaccination clinic ready, going figure out who we're going to vaccinate, who was going to do the vaccinations and administrations. And then we got going and the first dose was given across camp. That was the first dose in Canada. Yeah. I remember December 14th. Like, yeah. There was a lot of yeah. media attention on yeah. you guys. You know, I, I have, so I got vaccinated at the UHM clinic because yes. um, I worked at women's and you, it was a very well-run shop. I have to commend you on it. I'm hoping that maybe one day you'll take on uh, the passport office, <laughs> you know, getting my license, all the other things that need organization, but walk me through, you know, what are the challenges? Like, what was the biggest challenge that you were surprised by in establishing something like that? And then the second part is that mm-hmm. UHN served as not only vaccinating your own populations, but yes. soon you became the distribution hub yes. to the rest of the city. Well, not just for the distribution hub. UHN also was involved in a total. Finally, we were running five standing clinics. We vaccinated over 400,000 people. And then we also ran a mobile strategy, yeah. which brought vaccinations to, you know, uh, at-risk neighborhoods, to long-term care facilities, uh, to uh, uh, First Nations populations. Yep. So we were involved in anything to do with vaccination at that point. And it may have looked smooth on your end, but boy, we were really paddling under the water there trying to get things going. And there were so many expected, but also unexpected challenges. And a lot of them, lead to themes of what I think we need to focus on in the future. So one thing had to do with information. Mm -hmm. So we didn't even know when the vaccine was going to be available. And then when the vaccine was available, we still had very limited information linked to its stability, uh, its storage, its handling. And uh, a good example is the stringent storage requirements for this vaccine. When we received Pfizer, we were told it needed to be stored in negative 80 degree freezers. We did not have access to these freezers. So we were begging and borrowing freezers from our research colleagues at UHN so that we could create a freezer farm to hold all of this vaccine. So we borrowed freezers, but of course we put in orders for freezers. At the same time, every other organization that came to the same realization was putting in their orders. So now there was a lack of freezers around the world that everyone needed. At the same time, there were a lot of things that if we had thought about it and prepared, we could have done ahead of time. So we had to build from scratch medical directives. We had to build from scratch consent forms. And also, how do we prioritize recipients? Who gets that vaccine first? We were further challenged when we got the vaccine with endlessly changing information about availability of vaccine and supply and which vaccine we would get. Because eventually we had more than one vaccine that we had access to. And then there were daily changing directives from the ministry about which are the eligible populations, who can get that vaccine today, and also what are the dosing intervals. I remember when I had to tell people the very bad news that, oh, we had told you that you can get your second dose in three weeks, and we booked you in to get it three weeks, but now we're being told that you can't get it till three months Mm -hmm. because the mandate had changed. We now had to use all the vaccine we received to get as many people first doses as possible. So I think that we made a whole lot of mistakes along the way. We were learning as we went. 
but we tried to see them as learning opportunities. And in fact, what we did was that we built all of the stuff into a playbook that we then shared with other organizations so that across Canada, they had the ability to learn from our mistakes when they built their own clinics. So on the note of mistakes, mm-hmm. which ones do you think from your world and, and helping us think about the next pandemic, although this one's not over, could we have corrected? And which ones are mistakes that just had to happen? I think there are so many learnings that we can take from uh, our involvement with the, in this case, the vaccine clinics. I think one is uh, how prepared can you be for something that is unknown? And I think that while we don't know what the next pandemic is going to be, I think that we know likely there will be another worldwide pandemic sometime in the future. Yes. Is it going to be next month? Is it going to be next year? We don't know the details of it, but that shouldn't stop us from, from preparing for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that when this pandemic hit, even though infectious disease experts have been telling us, you know, we're due for a worldwide pandemic, things are happening, be prepared. When it hit, it really showed us how unprepared we were. Yeah. And we need to take all the learnings that we've gained from this pandemic and actually build on them. So, for example, you know, all of those policies and procedures and the ways of working together, you know, let's not kind of put that into the back burner. Let's keep that up front so that we use all those things to build on what we're going to do in the future. That research that we did, when you think about uh the research that was done, as soon as pandemic hit, as soon as people understood that something was happening with COVID, pretty well, all research refocused itself towards finding solutions, whether it was a drug solution, vaccine, or anything else. Mm -hmm. And that was very effective. And the government worked with all of these different companies and researchers to escalate testing and approval. And that's how we got new vaccines, new medications, uh, new processes that were approved. So it was really effective. And we know that if we put our mind to it, that can work. We can do that. We can focus. What we need to do now is not lose that focus because there's some other thing that's going to happen next. What are our researchers doing to assess what the risks are and figure out what are the solutions to that? And when it comes to things like drug production, I think it's really important for us to have drug produced in Canada. Mm -hmm. We were at great risk because we were so dependent on getting product from another country. That was a huge problem because those countries obviously need to make sure that their own population had sufficient vaccine or sufficient medications, sufficient masks, syringes, et cetera. Whereas when we have things that are available to us in Canada, then we have some control over that. And I would say the other thing is, you know, supply chain in general is such a big deal when it comes to um, dealing with the worldwide crisis. And it applies not just to vaccines and drugs, but to, you know, masks and ventilators. And when it comes to drug distribution, we had not taken into account all the special needs that certain drugs may have. In this case, you know, all the freezers. So all those things, I think we could have done better. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we've learned from them. So the next time around, we will do better. So if you think about the next pandemic, what three, two to three, if you had to mandate, like you had the power, you know, a <laughs> wand, and there was two things, two to three things you would instill to get ready now 
to prepare us, what would they be? You can't, you can't change everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a million things that we could have done better or things we'd prepare for. What would they be? What, what do you think is the best bang for our buck as a healthcare system or a country to be doing to be preparing for the next event? Well, I'm a pharmacist, so I always think about drugs, Yes, right? So, I mean, I think that we need to continue to do research on drugs, not just vaccines, but preventive medicines, uh, treatment, ancillary drugs, so that we have a whole host of different potential agents that we can pull on. And then it's not just about making those drugs available, but also that the, all the supply chain issues. How do we get that drug to where it needs to be so that we can actually use it on the population that requires mm -hmm. it? So that's a, a huge issue. I think as a pharmacist, the other thing that we discussed was the concept of vaccine hesitancy. How do we ensure that the public, when these drugs are available, actually want to use them? That's a role that pharmacists can play. And then the other thing that I think that we discussed was the, was the whole concept of uh, intersectional and interlevel uh, communication and interaction and teamwork. How do we take all of those many different groups and get them to play well together? Yeah. You know, that to that last point, given how quickly we were able to roll out a vaccine, develop a vaccine. It showed that if we work together on a concerted, exactly, you know, pretty incredible things can happen. Don't you kind of wish that we can do that for other things? Yeah. And we need to take that and do it for everything. Yeah. You know, it shows you that when we put our mind to it, we can do, we can do those right. things. We can work together. Yeah. You know, when push comes to shove and there's a major crisis at hand, everyone, you know, got to the table and put their egos aside and got the work done. But we need to do that every day, not only when there's a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we can, that, that teamwork <laughs> and collaboration definitely was able to solve a lot of, a lot of, I saw, I saw boundaries and walls being broken that yeah. we never believed would, yeah. uh, and different things that were, yeah, that were being able to be tackled. I asked Bowen the same question. How can we better prepare for the next pandemic? So what's holding us back now? Like if, 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 Someone in your space who's excited about this technology mm -hmm. and sees the power of it. As a society, if a pandemic was coming with a new virus that we haven't seen, what would be the rate limiting step to being able to fight it before it spreads? I think the first of all is um, how can we find a, a effective or the most effective sequence or the most effective parts of the virus that can be used for the vaccine purpose. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, for the coronavirus, it's not like you can take any part from the coronavirus and make it into a vaccine. You need to take the parts that is most immunogenic and uh, that, that can significantly affect the functionality of the virus. Because we want to teach our body to recognize these parts in the future, right? However, this coronavirus, they're very sneaky. They, they can change their shape or morphology like very frequently. So that brings us some difficulty, you know, to develop the vaccine. Because once you get the vaccine, this vaccine actually is outdated. Yeah. Uh, so that's why like, uh, we must be, you know, very cautious when we design uh, the sequence and uh, design like the antigen encoded by the MRA. So yeah. that's the first, uh, first challenge. Um, the second challenge is how can we further improve the potency and uh, improve the accessibility of these vaccines? You know, at the beginning, like uh, I know Canadian are only, uh, Canadians are only allowed to take one 
time vaccine at the beginning because yeah. the lack of you know vaccines. Right. How can we improve this accessibility of vaccines yeah. to more people? Uh, you know, to like uh, some developing countries. Uh, this is we also need to address this. This is very very important. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not just the development of the vaccine, but the capacity to produce it is produce really it. the rate limiting step here. Exactly. To produce it and uh, um, how to improve the stability. You know, right now the vaccine must be stored at uh, minus 80. Yeah. So that has high requirement for, for, you know, cold chains. Cold chain supply. Yeah. Some developing countries, they don't have such, you know, cold chain. Yeah. Cold chain. So basically they kind of use MR vaccines. So I want to say a few things back to you and tell me if I'm, I'm understanding this right. So the, the key rate limiting step with mRNA is not just breaking down that virus, but it's figuring out which part is best to highlight. Is that the subtle difference between the different uh, products that are out there? Yes. Which parts they, so there theoretically will be differences between them, right? Like yep. that one could be better than the other. So how do we know, is there ways to know it before we start producing them and sending it to clinical trials to know which one is going to perform better? Or is this sort of, we have to release it into the real world to see that? Uh, this is a good question because, uh, you know, every vaccine, they must experience uh, clinical trials and then people will be able to observe, okay, so this, whether this vaccine, the immune responses induced by this vaccine are protective enough, mm-hmm. um, have a good neutralization effect against the virus. Um, actually, the scientists will be able to, will try to de-risk uh, the vaccine to fail during the preclinical stage. We can test it in mice, in hamsters. Mm-hmm. Um to confirm that, okay, this vaccine can really be effective against, you know, the most um, or the newest the virus, newest version of the virus. They can really protect these mice from being attacked or infected by the virus. They can improve the survival of the animals first mm-hmm. before we move to human. In those early phases, is that where you're sort of optimizing which, which component or antigen that you're targeting? Yes. So actually, when we test the vaccines during the preclinical stage, we yeah. usually we don't test only one vaccine. We test multiple ones. So we compare which strategy is the best. Yeah. So let's say, for example, uh, the most common one is we're taking the spike protein parts from the um, virus. But more recently, scientists have found that when you combine the spike protein together with another part of the virus, it's called N protein together. Uh, this will further improve the immunity. Yeah. Induced in, in animals. So this strategy probably can be applied in clinical in the future. Yeah. So I, I, it sounds like this is just the beginning of an exciting adventure. Exactly. Yeah. I think the, the most exciting uh, period just, just start. Yeah. What do you, so what are you looking forward to in this space? Like what it was, you know, I, let me take a step back. A lot of people wrote that we got lucky mm-hmm. that the MRNA technology sort of matured right around the same time this pandemic hit. Like this wasn't an overnight thing. It's not like suddenly someone who's in the lab jumped out of their bathtub and yelled, Eureka, I figured this out. This was decades of work that built up towards this. Is this still the, like, what, like, is that actually one? Is that true? Like, did we just get lucky with the timing that mRNA was ready for the big time or did we have to rush it to get it out? Um, well, I would say if not because of this pandemic, probably most people until today still don't know what is mRNA. What yeah. is what is the MRI technology? I think because of this pandemic, uh, the MRI technology can got the opportunity to be translated into clinical use very quickly. Yeah. Because before this, like MRI was uh, explored for cancer vaccines mostly, mm-hmm. but uh, it was not very successful because cancer is a very tough disease. Right. Um, 
I would say like a, the Panoptic proves that mRNA is a very good candidate for making infectious disease vaccines. Yeah. So in the future, if we want to maximize the potential of mRNA for other fields, as for cancer vaccines or for therapy, there is a long way to go. The yeah. current technology, I don't want to say it's mature because there's still a big space to improve. The pandemic was hard. The science wasn't easy. But what happened was downright incredible. Both the science, but also the people coming together, systems, leaders, all broken down to solve one singular problem. And although the wounds are still fresh and we're still struggling through the end of this pandemic, I'm hopeful. I know it's strange with everything going on to worry about what would actually happen in the next pandemic, but I'm hopeful that we learned and that we'll continue and keep learning. But more importantly, I think I'm hopeful that we learned the power of working together. And just like Emily Musing said in our interview, the hope is that we can use this power of working together, not just to tackle the next pandemic, but to tackle all our major problems. This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. Musical accompaniment was from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. All news clips are credited to CBC The National. This episode was edited by Steve Southon. Special thanks to Emily Musing and Dr. Bowen Lee. We'll be dropping new episodes every single month, so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and keep asking questions. Catch you at the next episode.